We all hoped it was all over, or at least coming to an end. About a dozen European countries are seeing a spike in cases. Europe and parts of Asia have also seen a rise in cases. As a second wave of Omicron washes over the country like a tsunami, it couldn't be clearer that COVID hasn't gone away. The HSE says COVID-19 is now having a highly disruptive impact on health services. Over just five days last week, almost 64,000 new cases of the virus were reported. More than 1,300 people in hospital today have COVID. At the start of this week, 49 of them were in intensive care. That's the highest number of patients with COVID in Irish hospitals since April 2021. But even as the case numbers go up, government ministers talk down the reintroduction of restrictions. At the moment, there's no public health advice uh, being given to us that we should uh, reintroduce masks or reimpose restrictions in any way. So uh, unless that comes, we're not going to do it. If the surge continues, or if it gets worse, will doing nothing remain the only option on the table? I'm Connor Pope and this is In The News from the Irish Times. Today, what the latest Covid wave means both now and for our future. Dr Gerald Barry is an assistant professor of virology at UCD. Gerald, we're now in the second wave of Omicron. Can we start by addressing what has caused the spike in infections? Is it all down to the transmissibility of the illness or has a change in our behaviour been behind much of the spike? There isn't one single answer, like like COVID, unfortunately, for the last two years, there isn't a single answer to any of this kind of thing. I think there's multiple factors involved. There's no doubt people's behaviours have changed. I think people have relaxed, and rightly so to an extent. You know, I think we came through a major wave of infection in January. And, you know, the signals very much from the top, from, from NEFID and, and really from the government was that we had come through this and, and now we could start to um, maybe return to normal to an extent. And although there was still kind of murmurings of, you know, consider wearing a mask in certain situations, etc. I think as soon as you take away things like mandatory wearing of masks, it sends a signal to the public really that things are getting better or, or the problem has gone away to an extent. And, and so naturally people, I think, have relaxed. And of course, we know that the more cautious people are, the less likely they are to pass on the virus if they have it or go into environments where the virus might be circulating. And so as people relax and their behaviours change and they see other people's behaviour change, and of course, we take cues from each other in how to behave to a large extent as well. As all that happens, naturally, you're going to, I suppose, put yourself in situations uh, unknowingly in certain cases where you're going to encounter the virus more often. I think alongside that is the reality that really, although the kind of major wave of infection reduced, it never really went away. And so the virus kind of kept bubbling along at a pretty high rate, to be honest, and it kept circulating. But what has really, I suppose, changed on top of all that is, you know, the Omicron came along kind of January, December time. Um, and it was portrayed as this, you know, the highest transmissible version of the virus that we'd seen so far. And and everyone kind of thought, gosh, you know, could it get any more transmissible? And within weeks, we saw a new version again. So we're now referring to, I suppose, the original Omicron as, as BA1. And now we have a kind of a, a newer version of Omicron that we're now calling BA2. It's a slightly different version or variant of the original Omicron. Um, it has some small changes again in, in the outer proteins, the spike protein particularly, but also throughout the, the genetic makeup of the virus that mean that it's 
even further <laughs> advanced in its transmissibility, unfortunately. So it's about 1.4 times more transmissible than the original BA1 version of Omicron. Even if you've had a version of, of COVID previously, uh, you're kind of susceptible again to infection with this new version. So in fact, even people that had uh, the original Omicron back in January are now finding that they're getting reinfected. So now that doesn't mean that they're, you know, becoming severely ill, but that vulnerability to infection has arisen again, I suppose, and protection from previous variants has kind of reduced or waned slightly. So there's a kind of, uh, I suppose, a, a, a multiple f- factors that are contributing to this increase again. And, uh, you know, the reality of it is, I suppose, it points to this reality of, of you know, this virus is, is still bubbling away mm. and, and new versions are coming along all the time, unfortunately. And of course, we've been told for a long time that at some point we'd have to learn to live with COVID. Is this what living with COVID is like? Thousands of people getting sick every day. And when do you think it'll get better? And when do you think the rate of transmission will ease off, at least this year? I think one of the key messages that we have to now begin to appreciate is that we've never dealt in modern times with a respiratory virus like this. And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily its its ability to cause disease. I'm, I'm really referring to its transmissibility. So, you know, I think not all viruses are created equally, obviously, and some can move between people more easily than others. And, you know, we all kind of um, talk about something like the flu, I suppose, let's say pre-COVID. And we all kind of probably have one or two stories of, of, of getting the flu at some point in our lives. And we were kind of put to bed for a few days. And you remember those things because they were, they were relatively rare, let's say, because the chances of picking up flu and getting sick from it were, you know, r- relatively rare, I would say. Now, flu spread obviously every year, particularly around wintertime. But... It, its ability to transmit between people, while still relatively high, compared to COVID, is a kind of a, a dot in the distance, I would say. COVID is much more transmissible than, than influenza. And so therefore, the likelihood of, of you picking up COVID is much, much greater than, than picking up something like the flu. And so that, to me, is really the big difference between what we had pre-COVID and what we're dealing with now. It isn't necessarily, thankfully, because of things like vaccines and new treatments coming on stream, it isn't necessarily the the massive severe disease impact and the massive impact on the health system, although that is major. It's more the fact that people are going to pick this thing up on a regular basis. And we can see already that getting COVID does not mean you're immune from getting it again. And so regular reinfections are likely to happen for the foreseeable future. And because of its extreme transmissibility, your chances of getting it are very, very high on a regular basis if you're out and about and socializing and interacting with people like we all like to do. You know, and so I think that's that's a really key point to make about this virus is that, okay, it may not put you in hospital, but the chances of you getting it every three to six months potentially and feeling pretty crap for a week that possibility is a very real possibility for the vast majority of the population going forward for probably the foreseeable future, I would say. And did, did we underestimate that in, in recent times? Because we all kind of thought, you know, we'll get to grips with it. The vaccines will, will, will sort out COVID. 
And if the vaccines don't sort out COVID, well, then the boosters will sort out COVID. And if the boosters don't sort out COVID, well, then the fact that we've had COVID will sort out COVID. But this kind of constant reinfection, has that taken you by surprise? And has it taken broader society by surprise, do you think? I don't think I would say, well, maybe broader society possibly. It hasn't taken me by surprise in the sense that you know, we just have to look at other coronaviruses to see how regularly do, do they uh, reinfect people, I suppose. And uh, with, with other coronaviruses that would, that would be associated with kind of mild flu-like or, or, or even kind of mild cold-like symptoms, runny noses, that kind of thing, the kind of stuff that we normally deal with for, for you know, hundreds of years now. Um, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that with those, every year, pretty much, when they came back in winter, they would infect lots and lots of people. And, you know, the evidence was there as well that people that got it one year would be susceptible to reinfection the following year. And so we kind of assumed as a baseline that that probably was going to happen with COVID as well, or at least that was a kind of a fairly good guess. And and you have to say all this is kind of like educated guesses to an extent. Now, when you factor in alongside that, the, I suppose, lack of baseline immunity that was in the population that were kind of slowly building, but also the extreme transmissibility of this virus. With previous coronaviruses, because they were much more seasonal and they tended to kind of, I suppose, to an extent disappear during the summer and then come back every winter, uh, we were really only getting exposed to them every kind of winter and, and becoming infected by them. Whereas with COVID now, because it doesn't appear to have that kind of really black and white seasonality, it's unlikely to disappear in the summer, for example. It just means it's going to be around us much, much more. And so uh, the potential for reinfection is going to be there. And I suppose we the surprise element of it is maybe not a surprise, but more, we, we didn't really have evidence of any other virus that does that to a great extent. And so we didn't really, it was difficult to predict exactly what was going to happen in terms of reinfection and how good would protection be against infection. Um, and, you know, but the evidence is building now quite clearly that, uh, you know, even after a third shot of, of vaccine, um, protection against infection probably starts to wane by, you know, you're probably talking within three months, your your, your protection against reinfection drops down to, to pretty low levels. But I think, you know, we need to also remember that there's a big difference between infection and actually getting severely ill. But we're almost living in a kind of a grey area in the middle now, unfortunately, whereby people are getting infected. A lot of people brush it off without even some people not even knowing they're infected. But there's a kind of a middle ground where people are getting it. They're not ending up in hospital, but they're feeling pretty rubbish when they get it. And they're going to bed for two or three days. They're having to take time off work. They're having extended periods of fatigue post recovery. They're having kind of multiple dips post recovery. They're they're getting chest infections two or three weeks after recovery because the lungs were slightly damaged by the virus in the first place, and, and and other things are coming in to take advantage. So there's there's that kind of grey area where there's a percentage of the population that uh, are really struggling with it, not on a kind of a struggling and ending up in hospital basis, but also just generally feeling unwell, not being able to go to work, having to cancel trips, events, whatever it might be. So it's creating this kind of, I suppose, general level of feeling unwell in the population 
and and general kind of disruption to people's lives, I suppose, that maybe the general population as a whole didn't expect, I suppose, um, and, and kind of thought, you know, once we came through the winter, a bit like the flu, it would kind of go away. But it, it really doesn't appear to be doing that. Coming up, will warmer weather or an enhanced booster programme do anything to control further outbreaks? So do we have any hope then that the brighter and warmer days of spring and summer might at least have some impact on the number of cases that we're having to deal with? I think I think we have to hope it will. You know, I th- I don't think we can say for definite, you know, we're still learning with this. We we've never had a summer I suppose without restrictions so far with this virus. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. The hope would be that as the as the weather picks up, people are outside more, um, and naturally being outside, you're less likely to transmit the virus. And so, as a whole, I suppose the chances of the virus moving from one person to another reduces. And so, you hope that that will naturally reduce the number of infections in the population. We also know that uh, things like increased UV light, um, uh, slightly drier conditions, potentially uh, all these kind of atmospheric impacts, I suppose, on the virus can reduce its ability potentially to transmit as well. So, and with a lot of respiratory viruses in general, they tend not to be as transmissible or at least cause as many infections during warmer, warmer periods of the year. But I think we don't really have a kind of a, an expectation, or at least I don't have an expectation that it's going to follow the way the flu goes, for example, whereby you get lots of infections in kind of January, February time every year, and then it kind of goes away for the summer and then comes back again the following year. I don't really see COVID doing that, at least in the short term. I would see numbers decreasing, but I don't see it disappearing because it's so transmissible. Like if you if you kind of put some numbers on it, let's say if one person gets infected without mitigations, a person is likely to infect somewhere between six and eight people. Um, if there are no mitigations in place. Whereas the flu, you're likely to infect maybe one, maybe two people. So you're probably talking three or four times more transmissible. Now, coming into the summer, if all those kind of factors we mentioned, let's say cuts in half the potential to infect someone. So with the flu, you go from maybe 1.5 to maybe 0.75 people per infection that are likely to get infected again. Whereas if you take COVID and you say, okay, between six and eight people during the winter, half that, that's still two or three people. So that's still a growth of infections during the summer period. Now, as I say, we don't know exactly what's happened, but when you kind of start to think about it from that point of view, that summer means a reduction, not necessarily a disappearance of infection. You know, there's potential for infections to continue trundling along and uh, if you take into account the, the fact that, let's say people got their booster before Christmas, when you get into kind of summer period, we're six months post booster. If you haven't been exposed to it yet, your immunity against infection has reduced even further. And so you you continue to become, I suppose, more vulnerable to infection. So is the answer then more boosters? Because we know that there there's a booster program for people who are immunocompromised at the moment. Is it likely that that booster program will be widened to include everybody? And will we have to get that booster every three months, every five months, every six months going forward? I think there's a lack of clarity there as well, unfortunately. We don't really have strong evidence to say that the boost given by a fourth shot substantially increases your protection 
um, against infection or severe disease more than than what the booster, uh, the third shot has done already. Um, you know, so I think there is a lack of clarity there. I think every exposure in theory bumps up your antibody levels, bumps up your protection. So you would assume that a fourth shot would do that as well. But there comes a point where, you know, the body maybe stops responding as dramatically as it did the first few times. Now, we don't know exactly how it will it will respond with every shot we give it. It may well decide to kind of, I suppose, maximize its immunity to the infection and maintain that maximal level if we continuously expose it. But the other concern would be if you continuously expose it, the body grows used to it and doesn't respond as dramatically as we want it to because it starts to think, well, maybe this isn't as as dangerous as I thought it was the first time around, you know. So we really don't really know because I suppose we've never embarked on such an extensive vaccine program on a population level as we're proposing to do. You know, looking forward, I think it's very likely that what one might term vulnerable groups are going to be offered a fourth shot. And, and, you know, and so that's likely to be kind of people probably over the age of 65, at least, maybe even over the age of 50. Um, and then anybody else in any one or what would be termed vulnerable categories, I would expect that to happen probably from late summer onwards. And that's really based on the theory that, well, you know, to put it bluntly, you're better off having it than not having it to an extent. You know, there might be a little bit of that. Now, some evidence might build over time to say, yes, a fourth shot is a good idea. But I think there will be a little bit of, of, well, there's no negative to it, we don't think. So it's probably better to get it than not get it because it is likely to boost your, your protection against infection, at least for a short period. How you would apply that to the total population, I think, gets a little bit muddier. And I think it would be, it would be a bad thing, let's say, to rely on regular boosters to control this thing, you know, because I think it would be kind of relying on, on evidence that we don't sim- we simply don't have currently. Whereas we have evidence about things like, you know, masks or improving ventilation that we know will help. You'd almost argue we should be putting much greater emphasis on those kind of things in preparation for next winter, let's say, rather than just saying, should we be giving a fourth shot or not? Or, or you know, should we be ramping up our vaccinations now or even thinking about that? And that's a really good point because... Because the narrative has shifted a little bit in official circles, because up until last month, we had Neffet giving the government advice. And then we had the government and public health officials giving us advice about what to do when it came to wearing masks and social distancing and, and crowd control and all of those things. But it's very much become a case of use your best judgment and common sense and try and keep yourself safe. Has that had an impact on how the virus has spread? And do we need to go back to a a situation where we're getting more instruction, for want of a better word, from public health officials about what we need to do next. See, I think this is this is a very tricky situation because I think, you know, to an extent, uh, repeated instructions eventually tend to fall on deaf ears a lot of the time. And I think for the most part, people are aware of of this virus and they're aware of how it transmits. And and I suppose the government maybe wanted to be to moving in a direction where people made their own choices about their own personal health. Um, I think where that becomes challenging, though, is that if you if you ease off too much on on directives or instructions, people through no fault of their own, but more through kind of a lack of education, lack of 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 I suppose um, notification from the government 
that, you know, that this virus hasn't gone away and these are the key things that we need to keep in place. People naturally relax, people change the behaviours and they go back to living the life that they did in, in 2019 on the assumption that this isn't a problem anymore. And then we kind of get this, you know, rebound, I suppose, of the virus and, and it kind of coming back and affecting people's lives again. And then suddenly people start to realise, oh gosh, this this thing hasn't gone away. You know, and people kind of get tired of it and they get sick of, of dealing with this thing. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we need to get over that hump of being fed up with it and actually just start to accept that this is now what living with COVID is ultimately, at least for the foreseeable future. It's living with a highly infectious virus that can infect you repeatedly and can you make you feel pretty crap for three or four days. And for some people, it can put you in hospital. For some people, it might, you might not even know you're infected. And we still can't identify exactly who those people are and how they're going to respond. And having one version of COVID does not determine how you're going to respond the next time you get it, unfortunately. Most people will do better, but some people actually might do worse. So it's really that awkward situation of facing up to the reality. And, you know, it, it, we can't... I always kind of think of the ostrich burying its head in the sand a little bit and hoping that it passes us by. We've done that to an extent, I feel like, over the last month, month and a half. On the basis of, or on the back of, to be honest, the Neffet advice that came out in February, this idea that if you have symptoms, stay at home. If you're healthy and under 55, don't test yourself. You don't need to wear masks anymore. All those kind of messaging, I think, really... Uh, you know, and, and fueled, I suppose, to be expected by the media that COVID was going to go past us. And we could, but really the reality of it is we can't bury our heads in the sand. We have to face up to this, that this, what we're dealing with now, these kind of multiple waves, unless we do something different, this is kind of the reality of our lives now for the foreseeable. It's going to be regular disruptions by infection. It's going to be regular occasions when people are infected by this thing and not feeling well. And I think in the future, I don't want to kind of make a prediction of, is this our lives forever and ever? We don't know, I suppose. But without doubt for the foreseeable future, the next year at least, that, that is the reality of dealing with this. And, and I don't think anybody could realistically predict what's going to happen in five or ten years' time because we just simply don't know. Um, and we don't know what the virus is going to do. We don't really know how our immune system is going to deal over the long term with it either. Dr. Gerald Barry, thank you very much for talking to us. No problem. Thank you. That's all for today. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Gerald Barry. This episode of In the News was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>